From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Whether it's too many processed foods or a sedentary lifestyle, Americans are getting heavier. Researchers predict that by 2030, half of U.S. adults will be obese, according to Body Mass Index guidelines. How do we stop this trend? On today's program, we'll discuss the obesity epidemic and talk fad diets with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, of course, February 14th is Valentine's Day, but it is also National Donor Day. We'll talk about living kidney donation and safety tips for the second half of this winter season. All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we have known for some time that there is an epidemic of obesity in this country, but it's predicted to get worse. If current trends continue, nearly half of U.S. adults will be obese 10 years from now, and 25% will be severely obese. That does not sound good. It isn't. That uh, severe obesity that you just mentioned, that's got some potential dire consequences. Severe obesity is associated with more disability, more disease, and more death. Today's guest is a nutrition and preventative medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. We'll get his thoughts on the looming problem of severe obesity and also ask about trendy new diets, including fasting diets. Can they really add years to your life? Here's nutrition expert and the medical editor-in-chief of the Mayo Clinic Diet, Dr. Donald Hensrud. Welcome back to the program. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Hensrud. So... We didn't think it could get any worse, but it's going to. <laughs> Those are the predictions, and this is a new study that came out that kind of looked at uh, previous predictions and refined the methodology, so that's what they're, what they're saying. And, and who's they? It's a group that analyzed national data, and they used a little bit different methodology. We all tend to report our weight a little bit better than it is, <laughs> so they, they accounted <laughs> for that. Yeah. And uh, I accounted for that in their predictions, and this is what they came up with. It's going to continue to increase. You think they're accurate? Time will tell. There was actually a study published some time ago that suggested the same thing. There's been a couple of them, but this is the more recent one. And, and if it is accurate, as you already pointed out, it's, it does not bode well for the health of the country. Isn't part of it that somewhere along the way the definitions changed a little bit as to what was obese and what was severely obese? Have those numbers changed at all? The classification that they used did change. Severe obesity is, is commonly a BMI, and we'll talk about that, greater than 40. They used a BMI of 35. So there's a little bit different in the definition, but the, the definition of obesity, a BMI greater than 30, that remained the same. All right, explain BMI to us. Body mass index takes the height and weight and puts it into one number for classification purposes. We used to use ideal body weight as kind of a measure. BMI is a little bit better, but it's not perfect. It works good in populations, but in individuals it may not be accurate because it doesn't take into consideration body composition or muscle mass. So a bodybuilder would may have a high BMI, yet have a low percent body fat, 
and low health risks. But for the majority of people, it works pretty good in classifying health risks. And it's pretty easy to figure out. You just go to the Internet, put in BMI, you put in your height, and you put in your weight, and it'll tell you what your BMI is. That's right. All right, so give us the numbers. Where should we be? What's ideal? A normal BMI is less than 25, from 18.5 to 25. One of the issues with BMI, it isn't intuitive, like like weight is in pounds. So 18.5 to 25 is normal. 25 to 30 is overweight, and greater than 30 is obese, and that's what we're talking about. They use a definition in their article of greater than 35 for severe obesity. All right. The predictions also said that this is going to particularly affect women, this obesity problem, women, non-Hispanic blacks, and low-income adults. Isn't that the way it's always been? Yes. That's that's no change. That, that's nothing new. Right. And... Um, Worse in certain states, which I found interesting. Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Oklahoma. Why is that? It may be having to do with lifestyle, different diets. It's kind of the southeast of the of the country. Uh, an interesting fact, no surprise, that diabetes is more common in those states also. And the lowest prevalence, I guess this doesn't surprise you because the people are, are probably more active, Hawaii, California, Colorado, and the District of Columbia. Yeah, I don't know about the District of Columbia, but the others intuitively make sense. You've got to walk everywhere in the <laughs> District of Columbia. And it has been that shown it? that in urban areas, people tend to weigh less for that very reason. They New walk York, more. Yeah, yeah, New York City, the same thing. Yep. What are the implications of uh, severe obesity just versus regular obesity, for instance? Some of the health risks increase dramatically in the severe obesity range, um, even overall mortality. So health risks generally start to rise a little bit in the overweight category, not too much. In the obese category, they rise more, but severe obesity is where they increase almost exponentially the different complications, including overall mortality. And what about the implications with regard to health care costs? Oh, tremendous. We already know that we spend a tremendous amount of our of our health care uh, budget on, a, on complications of obesity and obesity, and that's going to continue to skyrocket. So the two big ones, really, for people who are overweight or obese, particularly diabetes and heart disease, right? Yeah, although high blood pressure, obstructive sleep apnea, abnormal blood lipids, mainly high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, degenerative arthritis, gallbladder disease, the list goes on and on. Complications from pregnancy or surgery. And so it really does affect a lot of things. Why would you say that obesity is is so difficult to prevent and so difficult to treat? This is one of the biggest paradoxes that I know. It sounds so easy. Just eat less and exercise more. And, and people, we tend to blame people for it too. But when something changes this dramatically, in the majority of the population, there has to be powerful factors that are affecting this. And the best way, to, I think, to look at this is it's a, a genetic predisposition that many of us have on top of a permissive environment where things have changed. We've engineered physical activity out of our lives in many different ways. A simple example I use is we don't have to walk into the gas station to pay for our gas anymore. We just swipe at the pump. You don't even have to walk up to the television to change the channel. Exactly. Or to open the garage door. (laughs) And if you do that multiple times during the day, we're burning less calories both at work and in our lives, and our diet has changed too. We have a lot more processed food and, and other things. So if those are the things that have changed... 
engineering physical movement out of our life, um, one of the things that people want to do is then fix the other factors like, well, then I shouldn't be so hungry or I should want to eat more healthful things. Is there any direction in fixing those problems? Oh, there are, and we have to look at this and attack this on multiple levels. We have to change the built environment and make physical activity the the easier and the healthier option. We have to get the food companies involved and make uh, healthier food that's lower in calories and make it taste good so people can buy it. But there are so many different factors that affect this. Uh, Another simple way I look at this is hundreds and thousands of years ago, the person who ate the most and did the least is the one who survived. Because in those days, everybody was doing activity and there wasn't a lot of food around. The environment has changed, but our inner brain still tells tells us there's a survival advantage to eating a lot and doing a little, taking the shortcut. So we, on an individual basis, we have to outsmart our limbic brain. We were just uh, talking, some friends and I were talking about the mental health aspects of your weight battle. Being that if you're not feeling mentally fit then you don't want to go exercise. You tend to not choose healthy foods, and that downward spiral contributes. And so dealing with mental health issues, which sometimes people tend to push aside, really should be looked at. You're absolutely right. And again, this is on multiple levels. Number one, we need to stop blaming people for their weight. It's not a choice that people make, and and we have some responsibility, but we're not as in control as what we think Mm -hmm. we are. Otherwise, this wouldn't be happening. And you're right about the vicious cycle. I see this in so many people, and it's it's hard to avoid. They may gain some weight. They're less uh, energetic, do less activity, gain some more weight, and it becomes a vicious cycle. So we have to try and break those cycles. And over at our Healthy Living program, we try and do it with baby steps. We get people to adopt certain things they can do, build on their successes, and create a positive cycle. How important is sleep in controlling your weight? We definitely know there's a relationship, and this is one of these nuances. Calories in and calories out are still important, by and large. But people who get less than six hours of sleep a night tend to weigh more for reasons we don't quite understand, whether it's hormonal or altered eating patterns. But that's a factor that modifies that energy balance equation. One last question. Where are we with regard to a diet pill? And I know there are some that you can order over the Internet. And I recently saw a story that actually one of those can increase your risk of a certain type of cancer. Where are we? When is it going to be available? In terms of over-the-counter products, I wouldn't waste your money. Not one has been shown to be effective long term. We do have prescription medications, and they are used, and they can, uh, under the right circumstances, lead to weight loss. One of the things that uh, one of our investigators is working on here at Mayo is tailoring the medications to certain people. For example, some people have their stomach empties very quickly and they're, they're hungry all the time. Well, if we can put them on a medication that delays that rapid emptying of the stomach, it might work more. And he has shown that this can almost double the amount of weight loss with medication. So, again, individualization is very key in this whole area. Do you prescribe to some patients prescription medications for uh, weight loss? My career path went more toward lifestyle some time ago. I I used to do that, but there are practitioners here who specialize uh, in that, and they they know the ins and outs and can keep them on a program long term. I tend to focus more on lifestyle myself. 
It's time for a short break. When we come back, we'll ask Dr. Hensrud about trendy new fasting diets. Celebrities are doing that, evidently. (laughs) We'll find out what diet he recommends and ask him about the new edition of the Mayo Clinic Diet. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back with Mayo Clinic nutrition expert and the medical editor-in-chief of the Mayo Clinic diet, Dr. Donald Hensrud. So, Dr. Donald Hensrud, we have talked about the obesity epidemic and how it's predicted to get worse. And now let's talk about some diets. And the first one we want to ask you about is fasting. Because I saw (laughs) a recent headline that said fasting diets may add years to your life as well as help you lose weight, a new study suggest. You agree? Uh, not entirely. Uh, the years to your life hasn't been proven yet. But where this came from, uh, it wasn't a new study. It was a new review of the literature that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in the end of December. And it reviewed all the evidence for intermittent fasting. And there are various ways of doing this. You can do it uh, in one day, just limit your uh, intake over a six-hour period of time. You can do alternate day fasting. Or what's been really popular in the U.K. is 5-2, where you're two days a week you fast. And there actually has been a lot of mostly short-term studies that have shown benefit from this in the body. For example, certain things happen when you fast. You produce more ketone bodies, and there are some beneficial metabolic uh, adaptations that happen with fasting separate from just decreasing overall calories uh, in a day. Ketone bodies, they're good? Uh, They can help. Uh, decrease appetite. Uh, yeah. Keto is another diet, which is a little bit different than intermittent fasting, but there's a little uh, overlap there. Is it dangerous to go two days without eating anything? It can be. And so some of the guidelines that they mentioned in this article were to ease into it. Um, initially, people often don't feel very good on, uh, they may be a little ornery. I, I know I get ornery when I don't yeah. eat, <laughs> and it would be difficult for me to do, frankly. But as you get into it, they say after about a month of this and you ease into it, then you get used to it and some of the beneficial effects start coming out. But it can be dangerous if done uh, uh, in extreme uh Circumstances. It seems like there's some fairly credible evidence out there that fasting may be good for some people. Uh, the neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins, I'm sure you saw the article, Professor Mark Matson, who said fasting may help your body improve its metabolism. It can trigger metabolic switching, whatever that means. Fasting is also linked with decreased blood pressure, cholesterol, resting heart rates. It can control blood sugar levels, increase resistance to stress, and suppress inflammation. All that true? That was in that article that yeah. in the New England Journal of Medicine. And short-term it is, but we don't have the long-term data. One of the questions I have is, and, and uh, caloric restriction has been around for a long time. Animal models have shown that rodents tend to live longer if you feed them less calories. But if we as a population can't reduce our calories enough just to manage our weight in, a, in an effective manner, I think it may be more difficult for many people to try and even decrease calories more, and you can overdo it. I've seen malnutrition in people who have taken caloric restriction, restriction and fasting uh, too far. What is dry fasting? So that's where people not only restrict calories, they restrict fluid, too. Mm. Absolutely do not recommend it. 
There's no basis at all for that. You can get dehydrated and have severe consequences. All right, let's talk about diets and including the Mayo Clinic diet. The fact that there are so many diets out there would suggest to me that none of them really work all that well. You're exactly right. The guidelines for treating uh, obesity in this country, uh, Dr. Mike Jensen was chair of a task force, he's from Mayo Clinic, that uh, came up with guidelines some years ago, and they came right out and said there isn't one best diet. If there were, everybody would be following it. And this can be an opportunity. Some people might want to go toward a, a higher fat Mediterranean-type diet that is lower in calories. Other people, more a traditional Asian diet that's a higher-carb, lower-fat diet that's lower in calories. So there are many different options, and people can use this to pick one that works for them. I'm going to go out and guess that you think the Mayo Clinic diet is the best diet of them all. Well, I do have a bias <laughs> in this, uh, uh, yes. Uh, and the reasons why are, number one, um, it's not only about losing weight, it's about health. If someone ate 500 calories from jelly beans, they'd lose weight, but that obviously isn't a healthy way to do it. So on the Mayo Clinic diet, we emphasize health-supporting foods. You can eat a lot of food, and it's based on the principle of calorie density, that if you eat a lot of fresh or frozen fruits and vegetables, that's a lot of bulk, you can achieve satiety at a lower calorie level. Why did you have to put out a second edition of this? What have you learned that you needed to update? What we did, people wanted certain things. They wanted more recipes. They wanted more menus. We put in a couple tables uh, that have uh, for entrees and for salads to give people ideas about what to eat. So in the salad table, you pick a protein, you pick a green, you pick a topping, a dressing, and people can mix and match and choose something that works for them. I just have a question. I am fascinated. I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan or any, uh, I just try to eat healthy. But why is it, do you think people are opposed to plant-based diets? I feel like there's such an emotionally charged response to having a suggestion of like, maybe you could follow a plant-based diet and people really push back on it. A couple of thoughts. One is that nutrition is a very personal issue. We all eat and we all have our own taste preferences and biases about nutrition. Secondly, plant-based doesn't mean vegan or vegetarian. I think people have this in their mind that they can never eat things again. The Mayo Clinic diet is plant-based, but we don't exclude any foods. We just tell people to eat or recommend to people to eat more plants, real food, fruits, vegetables, beans, nuts, whole grains, heart-healthy fats like olive oil, it can be a very enjoyable way to eat. By the way, U.S. News recently ranked 35 diets based on input from a panel of experts. I might, You might have been one of them. <laughs> but anyway, number one diet, Mediterranean. Uh, the Mayo Clinic was in the top five. But the Mayo Clinic diet is really quite similar to the Mediterranean diet, isn't it? You know, we tend to label diets, Mediterranean diet, a vegetarian diet, Mayo Clinic diet, the DASH diet for high blood pressure. The similarities are much greater than the differences. They're based on real food and a lot of plants. And I think that kind of summarizes uh, a, a good way to eat. Well, the bottom line is the obesity epidemic is likely to get worse. There may be some benefit to fasting, but if you really want to lose weight and keep it off, it takes some lifestyle changes. Best diet? Mediterranean, Mayo Clinic, one of those uh, top five. Whatever your best, choice. Don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> Our thanks to nutrition and preventive medicine specialist, Dr. Donald Hensrud. Thanks so much for being with us. Really a pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about living kidney donation and tips for staying safe from winter hazards. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Gynecologic cancer is any cancer that starts in a woman's reproductive organs. More than 94,000 women are diagnosed with gynecologic cancer annually, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The five main types of gynecologic cancer are cervical, ovarian, uterine, vaginal, and vulvar. But only one type, cervical cancer, can be prevented through screening and vaccination, says Dr. Christopher DiStefano a Mayo Clinic gynecologic surgeon. He says cervical cancer used to be one of the top causes of cancer for women in the U.S., but no longer, as it is preventable cancer through screening tests and vaccines. He says that the pap smear is the typical test used to identify abnormal cells in the cervix, and it should start for women at age 21 and then every three years after. For women over 30, doctors typically add a test to look for HPV or the human papillomavirus. 90% of cervical cancers are the result of HPV. Nearly 80 million people have HPV, and Dr. Stefano, and Dr. DeStefano says there are more than 40 strains that can cause cancer. But that's why the HPV vaccine is such an important prevention measure. He reminds us that as guidelines and screening recommendations change often, it's important to seek guidance from your health care provider. And in other news, every year, countless people make resolutions to focus on health and wellness. Eating better, getting more sleep, and exercising are usually at the top of the list. But one area that's often overlooked is preventive health screenings. Dr. Tina Arden, a Mayo Clinic family medicine physician, says it's important to schedule an annual physical to maintain overall health and address any concerns. She says you should annually review vaccinations, cancer screenings, and cardiovascular health. Now, some of the vaccines to review include tetanus, shingles, pneumonia, and HPV. She says it's also important to talk with your provider about your family history with cancer and other medical issues so they can make decisions about screening. Sometimes they'll look to screen patients earlier than the typical guidelines based on their family. Now, at a minimum, Dr. Arden says patients should have routine blood work to check cholesterol and blood glucose levels, as well as monitor blood pressure, which can be a warning sign for heart attack and stroke. Now, depending on age and gender, there may be additional tests. For men, a PSA blood test might be warranted, says Dr. Arden, whereas women may need a pelvic exam, pap smear for cervical cancer, or a mammogram. Also, a conversation about sexually transmitted infections would be a good idea. Annual physicals are also a great time to talk with your doctor about wellness goals, including ways to reduce stress, anxiety, and make other lifestyle adjustments like eating healthier or adding more exercise. Dr. Arden thinks an annual physical is the best prescription for long-term health and wellness. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. You know, there are about 125,000 people in this country waiting for an organ transplant, the gift of life. You know how many of those are waiting for a kidney? Out of 125,000? Yeah. What percent? Do you have any idea? Half? I didn't either. Well, it's 80%. 80%. A little over 80%. Now, it used to be that patients who were on the kidney transplant list had to wait for someone to die before they could get a kidney. Well, not anymore. You know, all of us have two kidneys, we and we only need one. So why not give one away? There you go. Over 6,000 people in 2018 chose to do just that. Joining us in studio to tell us more about living kidney donation is Mayo Clinic transplant surgeon Dr. Mikel Prieto. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. So, Dr. Prieto, nice to see you. Uh, living kidneys are better, last longer. 
Yes, and of course, the, there's a lot more of them than disease donors. Uh, so, so really, is a great option for patients that need uh, a kidney transplant. Six thousand of them done in 2018. How is 2019 shaping up? You know, it has been pretty steady. So I think we will probably do a little bit better. Uh, I wish I could say that we are dramatically increasing the amount of living donor transplants we do, but it's, it's pretty steady. It has been about the same for a few years. Of that number, how many of them are from living donors? Um, the Well, the... Um, uh, uh, Depends on the center and depends on part of the country that you are in. We the, the, Some places do more living donors than others. For example, here in the Midwest, living donation is very common. Uh, but uh, at Mayo particularly, uh, we do a very large percentage of our transplants, our, uh, kidney transplants are from living donors. Uh, but but um, it's, it's, it's an area where we can grow a lot, clearly. Isn't it true that about a third of your donors are now living donors? Uh, well... That's that's true for the country. Actually, in Rochester, a Mayo Clinic, 80% of the transplants we do here are living donors. Really? Yes. 80%? Yes. And are most of these relatives uh, of the recipient? They're all kinds. Uh, of course, relatives and close friends are the large, largest proportion. But sometimes distant relatives or friends of friends or co-workers or even uh, what we call the Good Samaritan donors, which is complete strangers, people that donate a kidney the same way you, you donate uh, blood. You don't know who's going to get it. We have met some of those people. We Pretty have. amazing. Well, and they set up the what is called the, the ladder, the donation chain. Explain how that works. Well, that's part of a kidney pair donation, uh, which has become a big part of what we do. Uh, in the past, when we were offering a living donation, you had to find a donor that matched you. And um, ideally, some people brought several several potential donors, and none of them matched. Either they had the wrong blood group, or they had a lot of antibodies against those donors, or it just simply was not a good match. Today, if you have somebody that is willing to donate a kidney in your behalf, we can always find a home for that kidney and at the same time find a kidney for you. So so we basically, uh, you become a part of a kidney swap. Are most of these patients who are waiting for a kidney getting some sort of treatment, and I mean I'm specifically dialysis? Well, ideally, and this is the other thing where we do things a little bit ahead of our times here, uh, you want to do, if you can, kidney disease is something that progresses slowly. If you, in an ideal situation, you want to get a living donor kidney before the need for dialysis. So about half of our patients... Are, have, are not yet on dialysis. We can transplant them where we know that they're going to need dialysis soon, but we avoid dialysis altogether by doing typically a living donor transplant before dialysis. This is not what happens in the rest of the world, where most patients that need a transplant spend one, two, three, four, five years on dialysis. But the ideal solution for this problem of kidney failure is to put the new kidney in before the, the old one fails. Because you're more healthy before your kidney has failed, of course. Exactly. It's much better for your body, of course, to, to basically solve the problem before it gets really bad. And also the quality of life. You know, the quality of life of somebody transplanted is completely normal, while somebody on dialysis, is uh, there's a significant impediment in the, what you can do. And a living kidney has a much longer life than a donated kidney from a dead person? The main advantage of a living donor are, is twofold. One... 
of course, you get a very healthy kidney from a healthy person. So for that reason, as you just correctly said, the, the life expectancy of a living donor kidney tends to be double than of a deceased donor. But there's another advantage, which is for a deceased donor, you need to wait. You need to wait on average five years. So you have to be on dialysis typically for a long time. With a living donor, if the living donor is your spouse or somebody, you find somebody relatively soon, you don't have to wait. As soon as the living donor passes the test and we approve and we say, yes, he's a good donor for you, we can go ahead and do the transplant and get you off dialysis. Do you have to be a certain age uh, to be a donor? Uh, And are you ever too old to donate a kidney? Our age uh, limits are 18. In other words, we don't allow children to donate, and 80. So uh, over 80, we think it's very unlikely you would qualify as a donor. We didn't used to have an age, but but uh, in, and I suppose if somebody that was 80 that was amazingly healthy and and and, and in, in good shape, we could probably consider it uh, as a donor. We have done donors of 77, 76. Obviously, we don't put those kidneys into 20-year-olds, but but typically spouses or brothers and sisters of, of the same age, they get those kidneys and they do fantastic. And there are no long-term side effects. Correct. I mean, if you are a living donor, you donate one of your two kidneys, your life expectancy is basically the same as someone who never donated a kidney. Correct. We have been doing living donors uh, transplants since the beginning of kidney transplantation. In fact, early on in the in the early 60s, all the all the kidney transplants were from living donors. So we have over 50 years experience on how these patients do long term. So we know that living donors have a normal, healthy life. Uh, long life and they, their average life expectancy is as good or better than the rest of the population. So we don't worry too much about those things. Of course, you know, going through surgery requires to select those patients very carefully and make sure that everything is done appropriately so we don't have any uh, negative uh, problems. What's the main misconception that people have about being a kidney donor? Well, a very common one, and it's interesting because even our donors, when they come in initially, uh, they are willing to accept this, is that you're going to be somehow crippled for the rest of your life Mm. or that you are going to expect it to have higher incidence of kidney disease or other medical problems because you donated a kidney. Now, a lot of people are willing to accept that while actually it's not true, really. We we would not be doing so many living donor transplants if we we felt that every so often we are hurting somebody. So the, the only reason why we feel very comfortable with this approach is because we know those, pe- those patients will recover, will be fine, will be healthy for the rest of their lives. And the other, the, most people would think that you're going to have a big incision on your flank to get the kidney out, but it's minimally invasive, right? You do it with little telescopes. Yeah, uh, fortunately, for the last 20-something years, we have been able to do this, the donor surgery, laparoscopically. The, the biggest incision where the kidney comes out is about about three and a half inches uh, is in the lower abdomen, and the kidney has to come out somehow, so you do need to make a slightly bigger incision. Uh, and then there's two little tiny incisions that we use for the scopes and so forth. So, How many have you yeah. done? Uh, well, we have done, we just reviewed our literature since we started doing laparoscopic surgery here. I may I actually did the first one in 1999. We have done 3,000. I wow. think I've done about one third of those. So, wow. yeah. Pretty incredible. Living kidney donation, giving the gift of life while you're still alive. The procedure to remove your kidney is minimally invasive. It's pretty incredible. The risks are small and your long-term survival is about the same as individuals who have not donated a kidney. Pretty amazing. 14 people died every day waiting for a kidney transplant. Maybe giving them one of your good ones, the gift of life, is something to consider. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic transplant surgeon, Dr. Mikhail Prieto. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. 
Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll get some tips for avoiding common winter hazards from a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, it's winter. There are a lot of things that can happen this time of year that can cause people to end up in the emergency room. Carbon monoxide poisoning, skiing and snowboarding accidents. Oh, frostbite, hypothermia, heart attacks and back pain while shoveling that white stuff. And fingers caught in a snowblower. Oh my gosh, here to talk about winter emergencies is Mayo Clinic Emergency Room Physician Dr. Susan Cullinan. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having Thanks for me. being here, Dr. Cullen. And, and let's start with carbon monoxide poisoning, because we occasionally hear of a case, but uh, you sent some figures, 50,000 people treated for that every year, and 400 people die? Correct. 400 people. And that is a lot of people that I think we don't think about that being that big of an emergency. Um, it's an invisible gas, odorless, colorless, so you often don't even know it's there and you're being exposed to it. The symptoms, you know, are so common, uh, similar to other things like viruses. You start with a headache, you don't feel well. Um, so they're very similar, so you might not even be aware that you're being poisoned with carbon monoxide. And is it mostly a bad furnace or a bad water heater, or how do most of cases happen? Most times it is furnaces. You know, you turn them on in the winter, you haven't had them serviced maybe or checked, and you don't even realize, and maybe your carbon monoxide detectors aren't up to par or haven't been checked, or you don't even have one. Um, and so those are the kind of things that lead to poisoning that are just people aren't ready for. This isn't even winter only. Lots of times you'll hear stories when there's been a hurricane or a tornado and people don't have power that they'll get carbon monoxide poisoning. Right. Or they'll bring furnaces or grills or heaters in that aren't supposed to be in the house and they become exposed to carbon monoxide. And then um, we'll, we'll pick it up sometimes if the whole family comes in with headaches or nausea. Sometimes it's, it's that easy, but um, we've had patients who've come in with stroke like symptoms and you think they're having a stroke and, and then as you work them up you realize that it's more than that and it's carbon monoxide poisoning. So and how do you confirm that? We do testing. There is a test, a blood test you can do um, and your carbon monoxide levels. If if you're a smoker, your carbon monoxide levels are still going to be kind of around the 5 level and even up to 10 sometimes. So they have a higher level just by being a smoker but um, the normal normal person should be less than 5 or six, I should say the non-smoker should be less than 5 um, when we do a level of carbon monoxide level. And when people start showing symptoms, often they're over 10 and 20 um, on the blood tests. And what about when the carbon monoxide detector goes off? Right. Some people blow it off. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't uh, pay attention to the carbon monoxide detector or they think it's... Um, you know, it needs a new battery or something, and they don't they don't do all the things they're supposed to do. But really, you should get it checked. You should leave the house. You should bring everybody outside or to a different place with you, and you should call nine one one and have the fire department come over and check the levels because that's the only way you're going to really know if um, the levels are high in your house or not. And how often do you see this? Actually, mostly in the winter, I assume. And then, mm-hmm. what do you do if you do make the diagnosis? We just recently had one in Northwest Wisconsin up in the emergency department where we diagnosed a patient. With 
with carbon monoxide poisoning. We got the fire department involved. Um, there was a big news story on it. I read it in the paper, and I was very impressed that our staff was able to pick this up and get help, and we're able to save one of the pets in the house and go over, and it was a faulty furnace. So this is... Um, but there's nothing you can do, really, is just let the... For the patient? Yeah. For, for the, the patient, patient, you would put them on oxygen, and they will start clearing after after so many hours. It depends on how high the level is. Sometimes they need hyperbaric um, oxygenation, too, to, to correct their symptoms. They can be that sick and that ill. And, and at what level is it where it, where it causes you death? Greater than 30 usually causes death, and it starts. they start getting different symptoms where they get um, lose coordination, they get, they're very confused, they can have a loss of consciousness. If they come in unresponsive, usually they'll need hyperbaric um Oxygenation and have no idea what the problem is. Sometimes they don't. Yeah, yeah. incredible. Let's talk about frostbite. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that happens a lot too. Yeah. yeah. What What are the symptoms of frostbite, and what is happening? Usually. Um, the symptoms, your fingers are getting very tingly and red to start with. And what's happening is the tissue is actually freezing. So the tissue and the skin um, are starting to freeze. And you start symptoms start building with the redness of the skin. And it can eventually get white and hard and waxy and blistery. So it, it goes through stages. And it's just catching it at those initial stages and getting it covered up and getting back into a warm place. That's that's the appropriate thing to do. And what about rewarming? Is rapid rewarming the wrong thing to do? Hot water, wrong? Right. Well, I think it'd be very painful to stick your fingers in super hot water. <laughs> and um, the appropriate thing is just getting it covered with something warm. Warm blankets are, are just the best way. And getting, getting inside in general and your body will naturally just all warm it up too. So yes, you don't want to Put but right we see cases uh, where the tissue actually dies and, the, and they right. end up with amputation of their toes or fingers. Correct. Not that all that uncommon. Not that uncommon. And even fingertips, um, tips of ears, tips of the nose, those are the most exposed and most common to get frostbite. What's hypothermia? Hypothermia is when you've been out in the cold for so long that your body temperature drops below 35 degrees Celsius. Um, have very similar symptoms to when we were talking about carbon monoxide. You start slowing down. You start getting confused. Your coordination off, um, you don't make the best decisions, um, and you know eventually your breathing slows down, your heart rate slows down, and you can die. So it's it, it it's um, it's very serious. Um, snow shoveling. I bet you <laughs> see probably more injuries, heart attacks. Isn't mm-hmm. it mostly heart attacks mostly from heart attacks. snow shoveling? Is most one of the most common things yeah. that you see? Said about a thousand injuries a year with snow shoveling, but a hundred deaths a year with shoveling. The American Heart Association just does not recommend it if you have a heart history at all. They say just don't even. It's not worth a clear driveway to risk your heart. So um, we do see it. You know, we'll get the 7 a.m. shovelers before work, and then they come in with chest pain and and pressure and shortness of breath, and um, sometimes that's their first clue that they do have heart problems. And snowblower safety. I don't like this part. No, this one, and it happens every year. People dig out that clog and um, they lose a finger or part of their hand and even when the snowblower is off um, you still have a chance when that when you remove the clog of snow that the blades can release and you can get injuries so it's, it happens every year. Our listeners in the southern part of the country are going snowblowers but falling, I mean even a little bit of snow can cause slippery situations so a lot of people are hurt every year when they fall. Thousands of injuries of falls and we see it more in the elderly but we see it in everybody. We see it in the young kids skiing and they have a skier's thumb. We see it in the kids that fall and, and hit their head and get concussions. But the elderly at more risk for when they fall, they just don't get back up right away. They have wrist injuries and they have hip injuries. And um, that leads to long recovery periods. So if you cannot go outside, that's just the best advice to avoid that icy 
All right, skier's thumb, by the way, it's where the, you rupture the ligament on the inside of the base of your thumb. It can happen skiing. It happens in football players. Very common injury. Very common, and people just get a sore, swollen thumb, and they don't realize that it usually requires surgery for surgery that ulnar collateral it. ligament to get yeah, reattached. Wow. Uh, Wintertime is <laughs> a busy time for a lot of emergencies around the country, and we've just heard about some of the most common reasons that people end up in the emergency room this time of year. And remember, like my old scrub nurse used to say, Safety never takes a vacation, even in the (laughs) wintertime. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Emergency Room Physician, Dr. Susan Cullinan. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.